We're about to hear from uh, Dr. Marion Lloyd-Smith. And uh, just before we get started, uh, I'd just like to read a little introduction that uh, Marion and I were discussing just now. It's by James Bradley uh, from the, the End of the Oceans, August 2018. It's particularly moving. He says, we are accustomed to thinking of the ocean as limitless. It is not. We have pushed many of its inhabitants to the brink of extinction and beyond. We have choked its water with plastics and other pollutants, leaching poisons into the bodies of fish and other animals, as well as ourselves. We have already irreversibly altered its ecology, its biology, even its very chemistry. So with that, let me introduce you to Dr. Marion Lloyd-Smith. Good morning, Marion. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is um, uh, a very special moment for me. I've uh, long been an admirer of your work. And, <laughs> and I was saying to our listeners, uh, anyone who was involved in the... Um, uh, campaign to save the area from uh, coal seam gas would be well aware of you and the work that you do. Um, with that, uh, would you like to explain to any of our listeners who don't know uh, who and what is the National Toxics Network? Sure, and it's lovely to be with you. Um, NTN, or the National Toxics Network, formed in 1993, so we've been around for a while. We work on a range of things, but basically pollution reduction, protection of environmental health and environmental justice for all. And we are committed to a toxic-free future. Um, we work across Australia and the Asia-Pacific region with other NGOs and internationally. And because we quickly learned that we could not address all of the issues that were needed to be, um, we work on a capacity-building module sort of basically providing information and technical assistance to groups, um, to individuals, to communities and to small island states to help them address their toxic issues. And while some of, some of us, as you mentioned, um, know NTN's work on fracking chemicals, we have other, many other campaigns, for example, helping communities fight toxic waste to energy facilities. Um, we're involved in the assessment of industrial chemicals and, of course, pesticide reduction, and lately, the last few years, we've been very much involved in ocean pollutants um, with the synergy of climate change as well, which, as your introduction explained, has really had devastating effects on our oceans. Indeed. And incineration, I noticed that that's also part of uh, one of your, your current campaigns. It's a big one. Um, my colleague uh, Jane Bremer and uh, Joe Imig from a lot of people will know Joe locally. Mm. They've been helping communities um, oppose the establishments of these waste to energy facilities right across the country. Um, and certainly there is a massive push by both the Australian government and the incineration industry to establish them. There was even talk of establishing one at Casino. Yeah. Um, and, of course, if we can't establish them here, then the government wants to establish them in Asia. So mm, it's, a, it's yeah. a 
pretty nasty situation. Yeah. And could you just explain to our listeners why uh, this is such a dangerous um, uh, practice? Sure. Um, Not only does it take away from the impetus to uh, recycle and deal with our packaging and our waste in a proper way, um, it produces emissions. Now, the industry says, of course, the emissions are... um, There's no air emissions. Somehow they can incinerate with no air emissions. But even (laughs) if... (laughs) Even if their pollution control equipment is so highly technical... Um, And having visited many incinerators through Europe myself, um, I know the size of the uh, cleaners that you are required to have limited air emissions. What you produce is this highly toxic ash. Mm, And that then has to be stored for all time um, because it is a hazardous substance. And while many people talk about, you know, Europe's wonderful incinerators... If you actually go and visit and then you find out where their ash goes, um, it's a very, very sorry story. Mm. And there are many uh, old mines that they're dumping it down. There's some little islands that um, Sweden has been moving their uh, hazardous ash to until finally the island said, you've got to be joking, no more. Mm, Thank you. It's not a closed cycle, uh, sorry, you know, a closed system, Mm. um, and it does produce massive amounts of waste. Mm. Yeah, I can well imagine. So um, we've heard a lot about the plastic pollution of our oceans. Um, uh, This is obviously an issue that um, NTN is involved in, but uh, just how bad is it? It's bad. It is incredibly bad. Um, we now find micro, microplastic pollution. And when I say microplastics, I'm talking about the little pieces of plastic that are less than five millimetres. Mm. And they can come from larger pieces of plastic breaking down or they can be the microbeads that they put in um, uh, makeup and cleansers. Um, they can be fibres from ropes or nets or synthetic clothing. And it's been estimated that they're around... Five trillion pieces um, in the oceans, greater than 250,000 tonnes. I personally think that's probably an underestimate. Mm. Um, And I think everyone has heard the quote that plastic rubbish will outweigh fish in the oceans by 2050. Um, But we know it contaminates the open oceans, it contaminates the seafloor, the deep deep sea sediments, Arctic sea ice, Um, even the estuaries where the fish breed. Um, And the problem with microplastics, they also then further break down to nanoplastics. And those nanoplastics then can enter the body of aquatic species and cross over um, into the blood supply or um, uh, into the reproductive uh, sac. So it it is a real concern. Because mm, uh, a lot of people think that um, if things break down, uh, they're sort of not a problem. They sort of uh, disappear, you know, disintegrate. But of course, right. it's um, it's not the case, is it? No, it's certainly not. Mm. And as these polymers weather and degrade, they not only form smaller and smaller pieces, but they can often release the chemicals that the polymers are actually made up of. Um, And I know a lot of people think of plastic as sort of an inert substance, Mm. but uh, they have numerous chemical additives, things like the flame retardants, um, Mm. BPA stabilisers, phthalate plasticisers, 
And when it comes to the plasticizers, some plastics will have up to 10 to 80 percent. Um, they will consist of 10 to 80 percent of, of the phthalate plasticizers. So these aren't inert things, and when they break down, maybe you can't see them, mm. but that mm. doesn't mean they're not there. And the problem is, as they break down, the smaller they break down, they have increased sorption of um, the POPs chemicals that we already find in the water. All of those persistent organic pollutants um, and the uh, persistent bioaccumulative toxins, um, and they basically absorb to the plastic. And they, you will find them on the plastic in orders of magnitude much higher than what's actually in the water. Um, you know, we've known about uh, ocean pollutants for a long time. You know, back in the 70s, they found PCBs and DDT and mm. seals and turtle eggs. Yeah. But as we've moved into the new century, we're finding newer forms of um, chemicals, some of the PFAS chemicals people may have heard of. They're the ones that were in the firefighting phones. Well, there's up to 4,000 different types of PFAS, and we're now finding a quite a new novel form of PFAS in the sea surface microlayer. And why that's so important is that's the critical habitat for much of the biota from the ocean, for their eggs and for their larvae, including that of commercial fisheries. And um, in one study, they looked at sea surface microlayer and they found these PFAS forever chemicals in 80% of their samples which were taken from the Antarctic to the Arctic right across the globe. So we do have massive contamination now in the oceans. Um, that's not only pops, it's also mercury and heavy metals. I think the mercury levels are, are supposed to double in the North Pacific Ocean by 2050. Um, yet when we test Pacific Islanders, they're already 96% of them are way, way above the... Um, US EPA's acceptable level of mercury in hair. So you've got all of those. And then, you know, there's pesticides. We mustn't forget mm, our good old pesticides. Yeah. So how, how does Australia fare in, uh, in all this? Um, are we, are we um, uh, better than uh, most? Or, um, <laughs> uh, we're pretty bad. Mm. <laughs> how did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> you sort of knew that, didn't you? I did, yeah. had that nasty sinking feeling. <laughs> yeah, our, our regulatory system is deplorable. Oh, um, and, for example, we use many, many pesticides that are banned overseas. Um, if people remember really? the fight to get rid of endosulfan. Yes. Um, endosulfan is something we're concerned about, not only because on, it's, a, it's a problem on land, but, you know, 40% of our Antarctic krill was contaminated with endosulfan. Yet Australia was literally pulled, kicking and screaming to the international table mm. to finally ban that chemical. Mm. But there are so many other pesticides we still use. And then if we look at industrial chemicals... We've just had what they call reforms, we call deforms, of the industrial um, regulatory system. And as of the 1st of July this year, um, probably about 70, 90% of our new industrial chemicals coming into the country will not be independently assessed by a government regulator. They'll rely basically on the companies. Um, the companies that want to import or use these new industrial chemicals will be able to self-determine whether 
they should be exempted or whether they should be assessed. And that will be based on their own personal assessment of the risk to human health and the environment. That's a if, terrible... If they, oh. they assess, sorry, That's they terrifying, assess isn't it? Yeah. Very low risk, mm. well, they won't even have to tell the regulator that they're bringing them in. There'll be no public record and the community will not know what's coming in and what's being used. This is just insanity by the Australian government. Well, we've certainly... Um, when they first proposed this in 2016, we opposed it very loud and long. And yeah. we fought tooth and nail. And unfortunately, um, they've just ignored that and gone ahead with this move to total self-regulation, which, you know, is tragic. So the industrial chemical companies have uh, lobbied harder than the... Um uh, the people who are trying to <laughs> save the earth. <laughs> well, the, prob- the problem is with the companies, they have a open door to the minister's office. Yeah. We do not. Yeah. Um, we, on numerous occasions, have requested minister- ministerial meetings um, and have either had to wait six or seven months or not at all. Or yeah. they, don't, yeah. know, they don't occur. Plus, Whereas you don't have millions of dollars to uh, donate to the, um, no. the parties either. No, certainly mm. we do not. No. So, all in all, and at the moment there is now a review of agricultural chemical assessment um, and we had a very long and heated um, meeting with the, reg- or with the regulator's assessors. These are the people that are assessing the regulator. Yeah. Um, only to be told that uh, the industry would like the category of cri- uh, the criteria of efficacy removed so that they could sell a pesticide without actually having to show that it works. Oh, it's unbelievable. The backward steps that are happening just just recently is just appalling. It seems almost as if the more scientific knowledge they are given, the more they are determined to ignore it. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. They have been quite appalling. Um, and even when you have international agencies, which um, like like the United Nations Environment Programme mm. um, and the uh, secretariats of the various conventions, we go through a very technical process of showing that a chemical is very harmful. It gets put on the list of banned international chemicals. Um, basically, Australia ignores that and has not ratified a single new persistent organic pollutant on the Stockholm Convention uh, since basically it was um, forced. So, yeah, we're pretty bad. It's extraordinary. Is there any good news globally? It doesn't sound as if there's much in Australia. There's Well, there's nothing much with the Australian government, but I think with the Australian community there's... Lots to be proud of and lots to be... A different um, story indeed, thank goodness. Thank goodness. And um, certainly when we look at the oceans, um, we have a whole load of sort of movement to regenerative farming, which um, even the UN Food and Agricultural Organisation now says is the only way we're going to actually feed the world, that is farming that looks after the soil, that sequesters carbon and that doesn't contaminate rivers and oceans with mm-hmm. pesticides. And that process is also being seen in these ecosystem approaches to aquaculture, 
where you have um, integrated, multi-trophic sort of agriculture. Otherwise, you're like you're growing fish farms and seaweed production together mm, in mm. open water. Mm. And there are some wonderful circular economy initiatives which are trying to get rid of the concept of waste um, and so that when a product is uh, developed or, or designed that its whole life cycle has to be taken into consideration and that what ends up at the end must be the beginning of something new. And so those are, you know, really positive stuff. But, look, un unless we deal with our reliance on the fossil fuels and the damage it's doing to the oceans through acidification, you know, unless we deal with our dependence on industrial farming and pesticides, Unless, unfortunately, we deal with increased population and unsustainable consumerism and, mm. you know, mm. and a lack of an independent regulatory assessment, monitoring and enforcement of chemicals, we can't move ahead. And um, we will do our best, but really it, it, it is the community we will all have to depend on because we will never um, resolve this with this government or, unfortunately, I've got to say, with the Labor opposition because we have worked very hard with them before only to be um, betrayed at the very last minute over mm. agricultural and pesticide reform. Mm. Donations again, corporate donations again, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, responsible for that. Um, yeah, well, thank goodness there are good, uh, there are good moves afoot globally. Um, is there nothing that can be done? I mean, is there no kind of um, uh, independent watchdog, any, uh, anyone to, to wave a stick at this government? Um, um, well, I think we've lo looked long and hard about how to deal with things, and that's one of the reasons we've worked internationally, mm. because when we could get nowhere with our own government, if we couldn't get a chemical ban in Australia... At least if you could get it banned internationally, yeah. it meant that while Australia may not ratify that ban, it meant that industry said, well, we're not really going to go ahead making this chemical anymore for one little country or for a handful of countries. Mm. It's banned globally. Let's get out of this particular chemical. Mm. And so that has worked um, very successfully, for mm. example, with endosulfan yeah. um, and with, uh, with the brominated flame retardants as well. So, you know, that's the way we work globally with a whole lot of other NGOs. Um, there's a group called IPEN, which is the International Pollution Elimination Network, of which we're a member and participate. And with hundreds of other NGOs across the world, we work to see chemicals removed from the international stage in mm. the hope that it will then affect what happens uh, in our own countries. But, you know, I... I don't put a fine point on it. It's an uphill battle, and, yeah. um, and it's a hard one. And one you've been um, uh, travelling for um, some 30 oh. years. <laughs> oh. too many years. Yeah, we won't go into that. Right. So um, maybe uh, some trade um, implications um, if we don't fall into line behind uh, more progressive in countries. Yeah, um, the... The WTO is interesting because you can have um, exemptions for trade requirements if it is to protect the human health of your, you know, population. So, you know, you don't have to import a chemical or use a chemical 
um, if you're you know protecting your your population. Unfortunately, it's the opposite with uh, with Australia. Mm. So mm. you know Australia wants to use all the badies, all the things that other countries have um, yeah. moved against. And I, one of the good examples is fipronil um, and the bee killing chemicals, the imidacloprids. They're the um. neonicotinoid chemicals. Right. Um, they're pesticides. They're very commonly used. They're now highly restricted to the point of nearly being banned in Europe. Um, similar situation in the US, and now China has um, banned the number of the um, nicotinoids, yet Australia keeps using them. So in a way, what happens is we, you know, as companies can no longer get rid of them elsewhere, they will sell them to this market. So, you know, there's not really a trade thing that you can um, you can use. Mm. It just doesn't exist. Mm. And you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, is very limited in what it can do. Mm. Um, and so it is up to personal, you know, personal action and then lobbying and then, of course, the whole issue of um, not dealing with companies who wish to continue to sell um, poisons. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you, you do risk falling foul of uh, some of the government's um, attitudes towards uh, boycott company boycotts. But... Really, they're, they're the sort of things we can do and then live our own lives in the cleanest and the least toxic. And to do that, people have to be very aware of what's in products and what they're using. And that, as I've explained with the industrial chemical system, is getting harder and harder. Mm. But um, there are many NGOs around the world who are trying to, you know, put in more and more information together about products. So even if you can't find out um, something in Australia, you may be able to look at an equivalent uh, product in America and find out information there. It's sort of, that's why it is so important to have these global networks. Indeed. So I have a question from uh, a listener. Um, He's saying, um, surely a responsible government uh, regulation would be to only allow the manufacture and use of plastics that can be recycled. Yes. Look, I I totally agree. That would be a responsible and sensible and probably an economically sensible way of Mm. going ahead. Mm. Um, But that is not what uh, the government appears to be doing. Um, Their attitude is if we can burn it in one of these waste-to-energy facilities, well, you know, why would we worry about recycling? We're a small country. We don't have enough, you know, um, amount of stuff to recycle commercially, which I don't agree with, but it's one of their arguments. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, let's deal with, let's burn, and we can deal with municipal waste as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, people just don't understand that municipal waste is quite often hazardous waste. Mm. because of things like the flame retardants and the perfluorinated uh, stain protectors, which are in so many products now. Very worrying. Now, look, I'm being extremely greedy with your time, Marion, so uh, you must tell me if I'm being too greedy. But I did see, I did read an article that you had written diffusing the toxic time bomb of invisible ocean pollutants, and I loved what you said. Your opening line was, life on Earth is utterly dependent on healthy oceans. They produce much of the oxygen we breathe, 
cycle the carbon dioxide and regulate the weather we experience. Perhaps it is the vastness of the oceans which has made us complacent about its capacity to keep absorbing our toxic wastes. Um, it was a great article. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a, a pleasure to have that published. Mm. And um, It is true. I think all of us forget that really it's the oceans that give us two-thirds of the global oxygen. Um, it, it sequests so much of our carbon. And, you know, we've been using for so long the ocean as a great global rubbish dump. Mm. Um, a colleague mm. once described it to me as a, a giant global sump collecting our rubbish and chemicals over time. Mm. And I remember being a bit shocked when he said that. Mm. But the more you go into it, the more you realise that that is exactly what we've been doing. And then now we've included climate change and so we're seeing the oceans are... What, 26% more acidic than they were at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. They're heating four to five times faster in the last 30 years to the previous 30 years. We have salinity levels going up, oxygen levels going down. Um, and, and importantly, I think people may not be aware that climate change is also remobilizing all of those old toxic chemicals that had made their way to the colder climates where they, you know, lodge in ice and snow and sediment. And I'm not saying that's good, but at least they're, you know, they're stationary there. Mm. But with increased heat, with increased um, weather extremes, we're seeing these chemicals now being remobilised from those environmental sinks. And as you can imagine, that just adds yet another load of pollutant assault um, against our ocean um, species and our in ocean environment. And, you know, it's pretty tragic. And when you look at some of the um, uh, problems that that is causing in uh, fish development and uh, mm. marine mammals, it's, it is very, very worrying. It is indeed. Look, Marianne, there's so much more that I want to ask you about. Um, uh, any hope that we could have you back on again? Oh, well, as you can tell, I, I love talking about this <laughs> issue, so I would be delighted. That would be lovely. That would be marvellous. Thank you so much. We've kept you for half an hour, and I'm, oh. I do apologise, but the time just went so quickly. Um, so much for us to know, and I think it's only by uh, the people being aware of what is going on that we can uh, make this turnaround happen. Yes, I agree. That is totally true. Mm. Well, it's been a delight and I would love to do it again. Yeah. Hooray. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. -bye. Bye.